This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and this is Episode 2 of Inside COVID-19. Coming up, South Africa's president fires a powerful salvo in the war against the virus. Discovery's head of clinical excellence unpacks where in the cycle the nation is now after the latest infection figures. We get a view from the investment world that this is like a world war, but is likely to be a relatively short one of only around 90 days. There's more good news emerging from Asia, where there are increased signs of a return to normality. And we get an on-the-ground report from our colleague in London. First, in the COVID-19 headlines today, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has announced a host of measures to combat COVID-19, spearheaded by a 21-day total lockdown that starts at midnight on Thursday night. In terms of this, citizens will be instructed to stay at home, except when needing to purchase food or medical supplies. It will be enforced by the military and the police. The country is taking its lead from an international experience where those countries that have acted swiftly and firmly have done best in containing the spread of the virus. Ramaphosa said the measures would have lasting economic costs, but that the cost of not acting now would be far greater. Interestingly, a solidarity fund has been created, seeded by government, with 150 million rand. Ramaphosa also said that the Rupert and Oppenheimer families have each contributed a billion rand to help small business. The transcript of the full speech and audio is on biznews.com. Even before the President's latest update, South Africans were certainly getting the message that this is super serious and social distancing is needed, as is the call to work from home. Traffic patterns in Johannesburg resemble the calmness of the Christmas holidays, while restaurants are empty. Here's Ocean Basket's chief executive, Grace Harding. Our sales over the weekend were about 58% down. And uh, um, up until the other day, I was still thinking about, gee whiz, what are we going to do to keep the trade going, to keep the customers coming in? And then I woke up this morning and I thought, well, I guess we need to get some advice from our forefathers because it feels like it is World War Three with different ammunition. And uh, as a restaurant group, obviously eating out is not a necessity like toilet paper, which has become number one on the list, apparently. But we definitely are seeing a massive decline. On the global front, U.S. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell has signaled that he will do whatever it takes to pump in money to keep the U.S. economic wheels turning. The Fed will extend loans to any business that requests help, throwing in hundreds of billions of dollars to prevent COVID-19 from turning into another global financial crisis. Powell says unlimited amounts of Treasury bonds will be purchased to prevent credit markets from seizing up as they did last week. U.S. share prices opened sharply lower but recovered well on the news of stimulus by the Fed. 
Worldwide infections of COVID-19 surged past 350,000 on Monday, double the number of a week ago. Deaths rose by 2,000 to over 15,500. 10% of these are in the U.S., where deaths have now risen to 473, the sixth highest in the world after Italy, China, Spain, Iran and France. Iran's infections now total 23,000, and that includes 24 members of the Iranian parliament. Australia tightened its measures, with restaurants and bars now being closed, and in India, a lockdown has been declared in several states. In China, the government reported just 39 new cases, all of them imported, as well as nine deaths in Wuhan. New Zealand has moved to its highest lockdown level, instructing that any outside activity must be solitary. Well, it's a warm welcome to Nolotando Nemetswerani, the head of the Centre for Clinical Excellence at Discovery. Nolu, can you give us uh, an update on the infections in South Africa? What's the latest number you've heard? The latest I've heard is 402 cases right now. And I think we are also very much aware that uh, there is a testing backlog. So whatever the current number is, um, we could be seeing more in the next uh, coming days that's, as the tests are, yeah, that's, are being processed. That's almost double where we were yesterday. Yeah, this is uh, 134, I think, new cases uh, just today. Why has it, uh, well, maybe you can explain to us the exponential growth that we've seen in the last few days. So I think if you look at the bulk of the cases, there is still some travel history, um, but we are also seeing local transmission right now. So I think it's people who have come back home and, um, you know, they they have uh, experienced symptoms and they have met testing criteria and and they are testing positive. So I think the worrying trend is that we are also seeing people with no travel history testing positive, which talks to the issue of uh, local transmission. Mm. Why is that worrying? Um, I think once you have local transmission, it means you no longer then are going to rely on on, uh, travel history. And then it means we're going to have person-to-person transmission, community spread, which could be quite devastating if we do not follow strict uh, strict preventive uh, measures uh, to, to, to curb this. And I think all the countries that started the way we did, where they did not implement strict um, or stringent uh, criteria up front, they ended up uh, overwhelmed with uh, widespread communities, uh, you know, um, community infections. So how well is South Africa prepared? I think we are as prepared as we can be. I think uh, the Department of Health, the National Institute for Communicable Diseases, have been working hard um, for quite some time to prepare. But I think we also understand that our our healthcare system, uh, you know, I don't. I mean, with with whatever preparedness and measures we can put in place, um, it is still a very fragile healthcare system. That if we have high volumes of 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 um, patients uh, that require form, some form of hospitalization or even intensive care, um, I, our system will not be able to cope. I think taking some lessons from, I mean, developed countries like Italy, where they 
probably have got, you know, a better infrastructure and better, you know, resources uh, than us. They are also not coping with the volumes uh, of cases that they are seeing. So I think that is the worrying trend from our side that once we get to very high numbers of patients who may be requiring hospitalization and also intensive care, our system will not be able to cope. Roughly how many of the people who are infected with the virus will need hospitalization? So our current, I mean, the current data shows that uh, 20% of of infected individuals will require hospitalization. And out of that, 5%. So if you look at 100% split, 80% will be mild and maybe um, they, those can be managed in the out-of-hospital environment. And then with the 20%, there's this 15% hospitalized without requiring intensive care and the 5% requiring intensive care, um, you know, um, uh, admissions. And I think we also know that we've got very limited ICU beds. So um, if we do get into a situation where that 20% is, is, is contributing to high volumes of patients, um, that's where it may be very difficult. I mean, if you look at Italy, for example, they have to decide which patients they, they let go and which patients they treat. Um, and I think it's a very difficult situation to find yourself in as a health professional or, you know, I think even as a government to have to decide which citizens will get care and which will not. It sounds, well, I mean, not sounds, it is incredibly serious. What can the government do to react against this? So I think it's really um, uh, learning from other countries, uh, taking some some important learnings from countries that have managed to keep the spread. You know, we talk about flattening the curve. And I think South Africa needs to be, you know, seriously thinking about flattening the curve. And I think we also, um, are, uh, it's important for us to take learnings from countries that actually delayed, you know, um, uh, responding. So I think from our side uh, as a country, we need to think carefully about how we, we prevent that widespread uh, community infections um, that we might uh, find ourselves in that situation very soon. How do we prevent us from, uh, you know, uh, experiencing what Italy is, is experiencing now? Taking lessons from other countries like uh, Singapore, taking lessons from other countries like South Korea, you know, combining those lessons and obviously adapting them for our setting and making sure that we do not um, really overwhelm our system uh, with with infections that we may not be able to cope with. Now, we know that the uh, president is in touch with the top scientists in China. We know that the information flow to South Africa is probably as good as anyone in the world. But is more now needed to be done to stop uh, the further infections? And, and if so, what? So I think we are waiting very patiently for the president's, uh, you know, a statement later today to see how we strengthen, you know, um, uh, you know, the, the response that uh, South Africa has already, um, you know, announced uh, about a week or so ago. I think for me, the worrying trend is that um, I think um, the, the, the general public, I'm not sure that they understand the gravity of the situation. And I think people are still continuing as if nothing is, is going on. You know, we talk about social distancing. People are making jokes and fun about what it means. And in actual fact, this is one of the most important interventions that we can uh, implement right now so that we, we really get to that flattening of the curve. We know that uh, one uh, person who's infected can infect 
about two and a half people. So if you can minimize that, um, you know, contact with people who are infected. And also, I think for me, really thinking about people who are infected, making sure that they properly isolate in their home environment if they are not hospitalized. So there are certain things that we, we, we I am just looking and thinking that people are not really taking seriously and the spread is going to continue. And we know that if, if we don't implement those social distancing, um, you know, uh, principles early on, um, we, we may sit in a very different um, position. And considering other, you know, uh, issues that South Africa has in terms of other infections that uh, are already prevalent in our, in our setting, uh, this may be quite devastating, really, if 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 the government does not, uh, you know, enforce even more stringent, um, uh, you know, um, measures uh, going forward. So I think there's been a lot uh, spoken about in the past few days around maybe a shutdown or a lockdown, which other countries have implemented. Maybe this is the time for us to consider that as a country as well. How will you know if you've got COVID-19? So I think right now the bulk of the people would have uh, either travelled and they come back and they some of them come back feeling a bit so the the most important symptom will be fever some patients will have a sore throat we've had other people complaining of a sore throat a dry cough and some actually getting shortness of breath which is more the the chest symptoms now so um, I think uh, those are the common um, symptoms but are not limited to that there are you know other people who present it differently and i think um you know the consideration of symptoms over time we are going to understand as more and more people get infected and start reporting uh, symptoms and i think we see even internationally data keeps changing and we keep seeing you know new evidence around other symptoms that uh, some of the positive patients are, are are reporting and how long does it last so this is quite interesting um, in, in, in the sense that, remember, from infection to actually the onset of symptoms, most people will be asymptomatic until maybe day five to seven. So by that time, obviously, the virus has been in the body and has been, um, you know, uh, multiplying for some time before you become symptomatic. So from the onset of symptoms, um, it varies from person to person and also depending on the severity of the disease. So for people with mild symptoms, they may be cleared of the infection in a week or two. But what we are seeing also is that uh, even though they may test, uh, they may be asymptomatic, they may continue to test positive meaning that they still have some form of viral shedding. So I think, um, you know what, um, we know what we know, but there's still a lot that we do not know. And considering that some patients may present with severe disease, uh, you know, recovery may take much longer for those patients compared to people with mild disease. So there is, I mean, uh, we, we, we were talking about 14 days. I think now we are thinking 21 days. So there is, you know, as, as we start to see more and more patients and understanding the data more, you know, we will revise and also have a better understanding of the duration of illness um, with, uh, with this particular virus. So it's still too unknown now to be able to say to someone who does get sick that it's three weeks, say, uh, after, after you've been feeling these symptoms that you can go back to work. No, definitely. We cannot just go with the, with the time frame because um, there's still a lot that we do not know. So we'll be guided, obviously. If you look right now, when people are symptomatic and they are confirmed to have the, the disease, 
Uh, most of them, in fact, all of them right now, uh, maybe the testing uh, process and protocol will change with time. But uh, before you can be cleared, you have to have two negative uh, results. So there are some people who are, who have, um, you know, been confirmed, have had symptoms, are now asymptomatic, but they are still testing positive. So, so uh, like I'm saying, we still are going to learn a lot and, and we can then, uh, based on that understanding, then maybe have, you know, better recommendations going forward. But right now, it is really about uh, collecting the data. Um, and some patients may have mild symptoms early on and then, uh, you know, have uh, severe symptoms later on. And I mean, we, 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 it's important to actually get the data and also interview some of these patients and understand the disease process better. Is there any update on immunization or vaccines? So, you know, when I talk about vaccines, I always emphasize the fact that vaccine development is very complex. So if you look at vaccine development in general, it takes many years. So, uh, and, and the reason for that, remember, you will do the testing in the lab and then you will go and do your animal studies, which we call preclinical studies. After that, once it has passed those phases, then you have to do human trials. So human trials are going to take a few months uh, before you can actually get to a point where you've got a commercially available uh, vaccine. And remember, the, the human trials must show that the vaccine is safe and it is efficacious. Um, so right now, I mean, we have been given a timeline of about 12 to 18 months um, uh, based on a fast-tracked process. Um, so we are looking at, at getting this sometime next year. So in the meantime, they, there's a lot of work being done in terms of testing treatments that can help uh, patients, you know, to recover better. Uh, there are various treatments. I'm sure you, uh, most people have been, you know, reading, um, you know, some of the reports around some of the drugs, the antimalarial, you know, antiretrovirals, uh, you know, interfer. So there's been a lot of um, various uh, drugs that have been, you know, uh, tried in some uh, in some countries, uh, and 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 you know, promising results have been reported. But unfortunately, from a, a treatment point of view, there is no confirmed or approved uh, treatment right now. Everything is still in trial phase. There is currently no vaccine uh, that is available, which is why we really emphasize the preventative measures and, and social distancing being one of the most important um, at this point. And for South Africans, apart from social distancing, how can they protect themselves, perhaps through building their own immunity? Are, are there any, uh, is there any advice you can give us there? I think there it's 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 the advice that we always uh, give, and I mean for me, uh, yes, we're talking COVID nineteen now, but we're gonna get, be getting into the flu season. So this is really the physical activity bits. We talk about um, uh, so it's exercise, um, good nutrition. Um, so when we talk about good nutrition, it's nutrition. Um, it's it's a diet uh, rich in, in in fruits and vegetables because that's where you get your your vitamin supply. And, and generally just, you know, hydration, all the good things that we, we advocate for will apply uh, for COVID-19 as well. Good sleep, because we know that sleep also is not a good, um, you know, it's, if you sleep well and, you know, enough hours, it, it's good for your immune system as well. So I think it's just a basic, um, you know, um, a basic uh, 
well wellness uh, you know uh, messages that we've been advocating for even before COVID-19 hit us. Nolu, just to close off with, uh, there was a trading statement today from Famous Brands and they have operations in the UK and in South Africa and they said that in the UK they saw uh, the virus really hitting them on the 1st of March, in South Africa the 16th of March. Is that about right from from your uh, experience that South Africa appears to be about two weeks behind countries like Britain? Yes, and I think, I mean, there's been quite a lot of speculations around why, uh, you know, we were not hit as early as others. I mean, there have been speculations around the the weather and all that. Uh, But, I mean, if you look at our initial cases that we saw, there were not, um, you know, there were imported cases from other countries. So I think, I mean, if you think about uh, the, the spread of the disease, it has almost been in the northern uh, hemisphere countries uh, with some of the southern hemisphere countries uh, being affected. So I think for me, um, you know, as we get more data, um, we will soon understand the patterns of spread, whether there's seasonality involved and also whether, you know, um, there are other factors that may have influenced the delays uh, in us seeing this infection. But I think now that we are in it, um, it is very important from a South African point of view to not um, ignore the lessons learned from other countries um, as we as we as we fight um, you know COVID nineteen going forward. Because I think, as you can see, we're going to be overwhelmed with the number of cases, and uh, something drastic needs to happen for us to prevent uh, further spread. The local stock markets had another tough session, but experienced market watcher David Shapiro is already seeing some light. The deputy chairman of Sassfin Securities reckons the market has now absorbed the shock, and although it's still a war zone, it is likely to be a short war, probably one only lasting 90 days. Why do you think that 90 days could be the the term? Maybe I'm too optimistic or... Uh, Maybe I've been around too long. But the one thing about markets is that once they begin to discount the bad news, people start to look differently at uh, share prices or at life. And I think we've seen, I think we've seen the worst in the news. In other words, there's no more shock value. I call it shock value in that um, we know it's around. We know we're going to lockdown. We know all of that, you know. Um, when when Goldman Sachs comes out and says, oh, the U.S. economy is going to be 30 percent down. We know that we closed the world down. So what do you expect? You know, we don't expect anything else. So that kind of news is not really forcing us out anymore. It's only uh, the marginal players that are saying, OK, let's get out now. So I would imagine we're going to start seeing the signs of a bottoming of the market. It's not going to feel like that. You know what I mean? It's not going to feel like that to you. But um, that's why I say we're probably closer to the end um, than than the beginning. Mm. And also, sorry, after a few months or after a few weeks of this, Alec, people start to say, hold on a sec. I can't stay. Hold up. You know, I'm going to get out. I'm going to start doing things. And they look at ways in which to uh, get their life back uh, in normal. So they will start to go to Grace's restaurant or start the Uber Eats and start spending and trying to improve uh, the lifestyle that they're, they're leading. 
and I'll come to other things uh, as we talk as well. So I'm saying, hold on a sec. Don't don't position yourself for disaster. Rather, try and position yourself for what things are going to look like when this ends. Isn't it just the the right thing to do now is not to try and catch any falling knives and not to throw no. uh, good money potentially after bad, but just to sit on the sidelines, as you've been advising actually over the last couple of weeks, yeah. and just wait for things to settle. Right. Exactly like, right, you know, and, and look for opportunities. Start thinking, you know, start thinking about your portfolio and where you want to be. What will the world look like? I don't think it's going to change. I think we're going to go back to where we are. Although I think that um, uh, when I say go back to where we are, I still think the same economy will prevail. I've been a big believer in the tech economy. I asked another guest on Rational Radio today, Perpetua's Delphine Governor, whether she agreed. David was saying yes, he, he, he agrees that it's, it is like a war that's going to last 90 days. How are you seeing it? Well, I think what both um, the observations by both, obviously, you know, highly experienced people that are that are seeing it and have experienced more than just kind of, you know, two or three decades, is that um, is showing you that actually no one knows how what the scenarios are going to be. So what we're sitting with is we're sitting with incredible uncertainty, and and I think what's hard, and and you know, when you ask David, um, have you seen anything like this before, David? Um, it's always the tricky thing is that why this feels so different. And I mean, I started my investment career as an analyst in March of 1998, so about 22 years ago, um, and we were just coming into this kind of peak of this, you know, incredible uh, bull market in South Africa. The likes of the Steinhoffs and all of that were listing back then, and then hits our first crisis. But where this one's different is that we've got these two threats. We've got this public health threat, which is very real, which and then we've got this economic threat, which is multifaceted because it's the supply side, the demand side, the whole financial system. So why we're not sure and, and why we're sitting with this uncertainty is that in the response from government, from policymakers, from kind of the war rooms, you know, in every single um, kind of country and government right now, is trying to address all of these things. When historically, when we've had bubbles burst um, or event-driven issues, it's typically been constrained to a manageable kind of almost space. Um, and so now we're sitting with a situation where no one can prove or disprove what our worst-case scenario is going to be. Those full interviews are available on the Biz News radio channel. The news from Asia continues to encourage. The number of new COVID-19 infections is falling, and hard evidence is emerging that business is returning to a semblance of normality. Yum, the owner of KFC, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell, says 95% of its stores in China have either partially or fully reopened. And in this interview, Jerome Phillips, the chief executive of an American company called Land's End, tells Bloomberg's Carol Masser and Jason Kelly that supply chains in the Middle Kingdom are now also returning to normal. Uh, it's a little bit different depending where we are in the world. We have offices in Asia and Europe and here. Um, for our workers in Asia, they're actually on their way back to work. Um, our Japan business has been picking up. Our sourcing office in China uh, is starting to come back in. And uh, where we originally thought supply chain was going to be a big problem, uh, we see very very few issues there, if any. Uh, in Europe and in Wisconsin, where we're based, um, we are on 
many of the employees are working from home. Staggered staff if you're in the office. Uh, and the warehouse is still working and shipping product out, but that's, again, on staggered staffing. Um, and in New York, where we have a small design office, uh, the people there are, are home and working from home. Everybody's getting used to working on Teams by Microsoft. Everybody's getting used to working on FaceTime. Uh, people are actually finding that they're having uh, some pretty good conversations uh, digitally and uh, making decisions faster and moving on. Uh, personally, uh, I had my whole family in the house today. Everybody's out of uh, New York and so, Jerome, help us understand sort of your customer at this point, because we know you're in touch with them uh, as well. You know, brick-and-mortar stores are closed, I believe, um, but, you know, online continues. What What are you seeing as you sort of get down uh, into the customer sphere? Uh, yeah, with the stores, uh, we have 26 stores, so not a, not a very right. large store base, and, and we've closed that over the weekend. That'll be closed for a few weeks. Uh, online, our online customer had been very robust yeah. uh, at the end of 2019 and then for the first few fiscal weeks of 2020. Up until about 10 days ago where we started to see people's um, demands uh, slow down and really change rapidly day by day. Um, I think that people are much more focused or have been in the last few days of just, you know, can I get the basic essentials? I believe over the course of the next few days, as people start to see that, you know, you can get food, you know, you can go in the grocery store and get chicken and toilet paper, you'll be fine. Um, their their lives are going to start to turn to, now this is the new norm for the time being, how do I manage through? So, uh, you know, we're staying on it day by day. We are seeing some people uh, enticed by uh, discounts a little bit, but that's mm-hmm. not what we're really looking at right now. I think it's important that people have the opportunity to shop from home and from the safety of their own homes. But at the same time, I don't think it's right to take advantage of any difficult situation. You know, it's interesting. I want to go back to what you said about China. Give me an idea, because we had a story in the magazine last week that was trying to, that you know, the question is, is China really getting back on track? Because of, from what we, from what our reporters found out is that, you know, yes, energy usage is up, which is a key indicator to figuring out what's going on in the Chinese economy. But we're also hearing that there are um, projections that factories have to hit in terms of energy usage and that there are just people going in and turning on the lights. From what you're seeing, what can you really clearly tell us about how much they've gotten back? Because I think the Chinese story does help us maybe hopefully figure out how we get back and how long it takes. Well, for us, it's really two stories. One is China, but also one is Japan. Um, on the China side, uh, we had had been very worried about supply chains straight away. Uh, having said that, China only represents about 20% of our production worldwide. Um, it, the guys were, were late, definitely getting back from Chinese New Year, but as we looked at production schedules and have been working with the factories directly, uh, we're finding that almost everything is going to be on time or up to two or three weeks late, which is actually okay for us from a delivery standpoint. Um, Japan was a little bit of a different story where we had an ongoing business in Japan, and we uh, ship out of Yokohama, which is where they had the uh, large cruise ship right. that was quarantined for quite some time. Uh, many of our employees uh, ended up working from home. They weren't coming into the office. We had customer service reps, which were working from home on laptops. And that went on for several weeks, but they're coming back into to work now as the uh, cases have gone down to you know small numbers or even zero in some cases. So we see, you know, it's like far as law, you know, there's the curve, there's a curve going up, and there's a curve going down. And it seems as though Asia's on the other side of the curve right now. (laughs) 
Well, our colleague Linda von Tilburg is based in London. And Linda, this morning we got maybe confirmation that the South Africa is about two weeks behind the UK. It came from an interesting source. Famous brands who've got operations in the UK as well as in South Africa said that the virus hit them or their business on the 1st of March in England and uh, on the 16th of March in South Africa. So I guess you living in London can tell us uh, what we can expect in two weeks' time. Is it? Um, have you got some insight into what South Africa can look forward to uh, with some trepidation? Well, yes, I think what's happened here is people weren't terribly serious about self-isolation in the beginning. So I think what happened was, you know, yesterday, which was a Sunday, people went to the beach, people were walking in national parks, people, a lot of people took their caravans and headed up north to Scotland to the Highlands and camped out there. And the government was absolutely appalled and said, that's not self-isolation. So I think... Um, they weren't take it, taking it too seriously. I think the measures here were slightly less strict in some respects. And I think the government here is going to camp down more. Um, what, what, with regard to economic activity, I think what is different here, I think South Africa is still going ahead. People are still going to the supermarkets. Where here that is happening, but literally all restaurants have been closed down. And even takeaways, McDonald's announced today and Nando's that, they totally clo- that they've totally closed their businesses for the foreseeable future. So I think the total clampdown and people realizing the seriousness of it is, I think, we're probably a little bit ahead. That's interesting because in the UK, initially there was a discussion about, well, allowing the virus to go through the population, build immunity in the herd, get over it quickly and you can get back to normal. But now clearly uh, after, I think it was that Imperial College report, uh, that has been so well publicized, a different approach. Yes, there is a different approach. The deaths are now are 220. It's mounting up. They think there's 5,000 confirmed cases, but it's probably so much more than that because they're not testing widely. Um, you know, um, I've got two children who work in London. Who they, Some of their friends have had it. And they phoned this, phoned the what's called the National Health Service here, the NHS, and they would just say, "Well, if you're okay, you know, we're not going to test you or anything." So I think they have no idea of the actual numbers. But what happened slightly differently here is that they isolated the elderly, people above seventy have to stay home for twelve weeks. I think that's what they were thinking that this herd, you know, um, 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 what do you call it? Immunity. That the her- mm-hmm. Yeah, immunity. That the herd immunity like work would work like a vaccination, but they've abandoned that and, and isolated the elderly people. Um, and I think they're becoming more and more strict and they're a little bit appalled about, you know, people gathering what they call in clusters. They, 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 new measures are coming today, and they, well, it's speculation that they're going to say that people should only move around in twos, no more people than two people together. So they're worried about people getting together in parks and, and, and festivals and churches and stuff. And um, I think new measures are coming. What, where we are ahead of you, I think, is in the numbers. South Africa doesn't have the cases that they have here. I drove last night into London. We live just outside London to, to drop off my son. And it was kind of, I think that was yesterday afternoon, but there was sort of, there was another press conference and the government said, you guys really need to take this seriously now. You know, there's no, this. um the sort of British thing of we're allowing to do things and we're asking you nicely and it's not happening. So it was quite 
interesting for me last night to notice that the streets were empty. I went to an area called Clapham Junction, which is where the young people live. And there wasn't anybody on the streets, literally nobody. I saw a couple of people um, at bus stops, maybe waiting. And I saw these little scooters driving around with Uber Eats and um, Deliveroo and so on. So I think it's finally sinking in, but, but possibly too slow. That's possibly why the spread is, spread is faster. This has been episode two of Inside COVID-19. Until tomorrow, I'm Alec Hogg. Cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.